from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to Still Growing. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. I've got another great show for you today. But before we get into it, I want to thank you for joining us and also cover some of the usual housekeeping items before I get started. Don't forget, you can check out the show notes over at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find the Still Growing podcast in the top menu and then just scroll down to episodes and you'll find today's show there. If you head on over to iTunes, you can give me a review there. You can also get the show there. If you're listening on Stitcher Radio, if you could hit that little thumbs up button down in the corner, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, so let me share the view from up here this week. It's in a post called Back to Normal. Um, As some of you may have noticed, um, I don't sound quite like myself, and that's because I've been battling through what started as a head cold in Boston, and that was in late September, and then that became a raging sinus infection by the time we got back home to Minneapolis in early October, and then my asthma got triggered, and then all the coughing led to laryngitis. So I had a about a week and a half where I really didn't have much of a voice. And from there, it's been a daily battle to get back to health. But I am so happy to say I'm feeling much better, back to normal, as they say, and I'm resuming my full schedule of daily activities. I still have a little bit of a cough. My voice is still not 100%, but I am so grateful just to be feeling like myself. It's been a huge improvement over just the the fatigue and the... um, Uh, kind of misery that I've been going through uh, the beginning of October. Well, winter is on its way. We've got our first freeze warning coming for this weekend. And while I haven't been in the gardens much since getting sick, I did manage to start bringing in the houseplants. I wash them off with sharp sprays of water and I give them long soaks in soapy, warm water, just kind of getting them acclimated to life in the house. And they all look so fantastic after their summer outdoors, especially the Hoyas, which are my favorite house plant. Many of them were were blooming uh, when I was bringing them in the house. So they just look spectacular. And I'm happy to have them back in the house again, because I I almost get to the point where the majority of my house plants are out during the summer. And um, for anyone who's been to my home, they know I have a ton of house plants throughout the house. So it's nice to kind of make room for them again and uh, kind of rearrange and uh, dust, which is uh, something my mother does a much better job of than I do. And so if nothing else, bringing in those houseplants uh, gives me another shot at fall cleaning. The Christmas cactus are loving the abrupt change. In fact, I swear that I can see those things start to set buds the minute you bring them in the house. Um, And I know that they'll be blooming in no time. I recently shared a post on Six Foot Mama. In fact, I just finished writing it where I share my nightly checklist, which I have my babysitter team use on school nights. I've had a lot of people ask me how I'm keeping it together with Phil being gone. And I'm very upfront about the fact that I have this fabulous group of senior high girls, Taylor, Hannah, Kendall, and Wendy that help me on Sunday through Thursday nights, which are the school nights for three hours each of those nights. 
And they help me uh, with especially the little boys because while they're working with the little boys, I am working with the older two and making sure that they're um, meeting their homework demands. And that was one of the things that really struck me as I was anticipating Phil being gone for two months was really how I was going to attend to all the homework demands for four kids um, right at the beginning of the school season. And I knew that would be impossible without help. And so these gals have really helped me to put some great systems in place this year. And as I was thinking about that, um, especially when I started to get sick in October, I came up with this checklist that um, has really refined how we work together in the evenings with the kids. So the checklist is on my blog in a post called School Night Checklist. At Everest Lane House, we've got a chalkboard in our kitchen and we started counting down the days until Phil gets home. It won't be long now. I think we're almost to the week mark. So he'll be home and we'll be celebrating. In the kitchen, we've rediscovered a fall favorite. It's my mom's quick caramel frosting. And for those of you who love caramel and kind of associate that taste with fall, you're going to love this recipe. In fact, if you take any box chocolate cake, it becomes completely completely irresistible with this frosting. And you can get the recipe at Six Foot Mama. You can just search uh, quick caramel frosting. Or if you go to this post, uh, that's called Back to Normal. Um, I have links to it in this post. This week, I also wrote a sweet little post about my son, John, and it's called People Can Change. Check it out if you've ever experienced one of those moments with your kids where they literally grew up right before your eyes. Outside, the fall season is well underway, although some things are further along than others. Indeed, some of our trees have lost their leaves completely, but the locust tree in front of our house is as green as ever, and I always attribute that to the sprinkler system. The monk's hood in my front garden, which faces north, has another week before it starts to bloom, and even though I get a little disgusted with the fact that it's the only thing that's blooming at this time of year uh, in my garden, it's still kind of nice to see it out there. Um, I know it's like the last gasp of summer when I see my monks head blooming. And hopefully um, I'll get to see that bloom and that and it won't freeze with the freeze warning that's coming. Finally, one of the best parts of this season for me has been the drive to pick up my kids from school each day. At three o'clock, I start my drive down this beautiful part of our city in Maple Grove called Nottingham Parkway that's near my house. And at three o'clock, the afternoon sunshine perfectly hits the trees along the parkway and it is just pure fall beauty. And so that's been a real wonderful part of my day, uh, Monday through Friday each week. Now let me introduce you to the guest for our show this week. I had the chance to meet and chat with Sarah Griffin Bubakar. Sarah is the retail store manager for Peaceful Valley Farm and Garden Supply in Grass Valley, California. Based in the scenic gold country of the Sierra Nevada foothills, Peaceful Valley is the largest organic gardening supply company in the United States. Sarah is a graduate of Humboldt State University in Northern California. 
California. And she also worked on an organic coffee and fruit farm in Hawaii. She loves to be involved in the local agriculture scene in California, and she enjoys helping farmers and gardeners with their questions and problems. Sarah was trained in integrated pest management by the University of California. She teaches popular workshops at Peaceful Valley on canning and preserving, cheese making, and irrigation. And at home, Sarah has an extensive organic garden, and she raises backyard chickens and little boys. She's got a uh, five-year-old and a little nine-month-old. And I have to say that aside from being so amazingly knowledgeable about a diverse range of topics, she's just a really great gal. And I know that if we lived closer, we'd be hanging out together and I would be boxing up John's clothes for her little boys. So making friends on the job is just one of those little unexpected perks that you just can't even put a value on. I had just a lovely time chatting with Sarah. And I have to tell you that she had a little surprise in store for me after the show. And I uh, feature that in the outtakes at the very end of the episode. So if you make it all the way through to the end, you'll get to hear the little surprise that Sarah had in store for me. So anyway, I know that you're going to enjoy this episode. If you've ever wondered about cover crop crops um, and whether or not that might be something you want to do to feed your garden, as well as planting garlic and shallots, which the time to do that is right now. Uh, this will be a great show for you. Let's go ahead and listen to the episode. Well, I'm here on this blustery fall day talking by phone with Sarah Griffin Bubakar. Welcome to Still Growing, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Yes. Well, tell us about yourself. Well, I work at Peaceful Valley Farm and Garden Supply, and we're, I'm in Northern California in Grass Valley. And uh, I've worked here as the manager for about three years, and I've been working here um, for about five years total. And I really enjoy it. I love talking about gardening all day. It's what I do. I have two little boys at home, ages five and nine months, and they like to help me out in the garden too. Now, I love the part of your bio where it says you worked on an organic coffee and fruit farm in Hawaii. That had to be a pinch me moment. <laughs> yeah, it was right after college and um, didn't know what to do and had a friend who was starting. She was actually kind of revamping an existing farm. So it just was everything grows so easily in Hawaii with that volcanic soil and the climate. So it was basically weeding and harvesting was what I did. I went surfing every day. So, you know, pretty easy life for oh my sure. Gosh. What was one of your key <laughs> takeaways there? I mean, you've got, you got a chance to, to work with coffee and fruit in Hawaii. Do you have any like lasting impressions of that experience? Well, that a field of coffee, I don't think people realize or remember that coffee is related to gardenias. And so a field of coffee in bloom smells like heaven. They call it Kona snow because the fields will just be all white with these uh, incredibly sweet smelling flowers. And you drive down the road and stick your head out because it smells so good. Wow. (laughs) Well, I'm sure it's a far cry from the pathetic little coffee plant I have growing in a terrarium in my kitchen, which I feel like, you know, I have to have it as an ode to all the coffee I drink. Yeah, and I grow a, I grow camellia here. Cause, you do? Um, well, yeah, because I'm a tea drinker. So. Oh. 
That's a camellia. Well, so. there you go. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Now, Peaceful Valley Farm and Garden Supply has been around since 1976. I won't tell you how old I was in 1976, <laughs> but I know that you are the store manager there in Grass Valley, California. Can you um, share the Peaceful Valley story for us, how it began and how it's grown over the years? Um, yeah, we started on uh, a little tiny Peaceful Valley Road in Nevada City, California, and uh, it was started in a small garage when they sent out a four-page newsletter to growers. It started kind of as like a cooperative, a way to buy a lot of fertilizer that they could all share. Um, and um, then the business expanded, and they had a little shed and an outhouse for employees. That was an expansion. Um, and then from there, uh, they started publishing catalogs in 1985. And... Um, the business now, we've been in this, like our current building, our current facility since 2005, and uh, we have a 2,500-square-foot store and 3,000-square-foot offices and a huge warehouse. And uh, so, yeah, we ship all over the country, and I'm in charge of more the local side of our business, so it's good because I get to be face-to-face with most of my customers, which That's I like. That's awesome. Now, are some of the founding people still involved in the business? Yeah, actually. Mark Fenton, he, he was one of, I think he took over around 89 or something like that because the founder sold the business in 89. Um, he still shops here sometimes. Previous owner works here and it's nice to have him around. He knows all the ins and outs of the business. <laughs> That's such a nice legacy to have, isn't it? I love when things start like that. Yeah, yeah. Now, you you are the store manager there. Give people an idea what a typical day is like for you. Yeah, I've been store manager for about three years. My main job is helping customers with any and helping my staff with any problems that come up. Um, and just I try to really make sure that customers have a satisfying experience here. Um, I also kind of the the one that when somebody brings in a, a leaf with some disease on it or an insect they can't identify, I have a microscope in my office and it's it's my hobby to try and identify insects. And I also do like the soil test um, analysis. So you can get your soil tested here and then come in and talk to me or you can call me and talk to me um, about what fertilizers to add based on your soil test. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah, I, I really get into the chemistry of it all, you know. Absolutely. I Now, do a lot of people take advantage of that? Oh, yes, definitely. In the spring, I'm extremely busy with that. It's more of like a hobby for me, you know, that I'm really interested in it. And I teach classes on that sometimes, too. You and I were talking before the show, and I admire you so much because you have so much expertise in many, many different aspects of life, not just gardening. One of the things that's very intriguing to me is this canning and preserving class that you teach. And I don't know how you're doing that at your age, that you know so much (laughs) about canning and preserving, and yet you do. Tell us just kind of the cliff notes on how that all started and a one-minute elevator pitch on why folks should can and preserve. Yeah, you know, I, I I got into canning about eight years ago. Um, I took a canning class at a farm, um, and I my garden isn't always huge, so sometimes I'll just go to the farmers market and buy like cases of tomatoes. And one of my favorite things to do is pickle okra. I love pickled okra, and uh, I'll bring home you know a case of okra and uh, preserve it all that way. Canning is really easy. You have to be careful. It is, you know, could be dangerous if you're not careful and if you don't do it right. 
So following a recipe is really key with canning. Um, but I also do like dehydrating. I have a really nice dehydrator I got here at Peace of Valley. And um, that's really easy. And you'd be surprised at the things that you can make with that. And um, then also uh, lacto-fermentation is another hobby of mine. So like preserving olives and things um, using like a fermentation crock. So I make olives and sauerkraut and things like that, kimchi. And that's really, really fun. And I guess why you should can or why you should preserve your food, you know, it's it's really best to eat in season. And uh, there's nothing like pulling out a can of peach jam that you canned at the height of the season in the summer and you pull it out in the middle of winter and tastes like summer, you know, and um, bring out those frozen green beans out of the freezer and uh, you have like a nice summer meal that you set aside for you thought about ahead of time so yep. you know yeah. one of the other things that I admire about you is that you um what did you say you have a sickness for cheese making that you have been overcome by this passion uh for making cheese and that you are now an experienced cheesemaker right it's true yeah and that uh, piece of valley got me into that because we started carrying cheese making supplies and I just started using them and uh it is really, really fun. I've been making cheese for about three years, and um, I love it. I have a cheese fridge for aging the cheese. It's like my little cheese cave. And uh, I make all sorts of hard cheeses, and I'm experimenting with um, all sorts of different additives, like different molds and funguses that um, you can use to age the cheese. And My most complicated cheese I've ever made it would be a Swiss. I'm not quite up to a uh, brie or a gorgonzola yet, but I'm working on it. Wow. <laughs> What's one of the most surprising things that you've learned about cheese making? It's so easy. I guess really? that would be. Yeah, it's it's easy, especially if you, you know, you start out with the soft cheeses and, um, you know, you have to be pretty careful about your, your temperatures and everything, but I've never really failed at a cheese. I've had some cheese turn out better, you know, than others. But, um, but overall, it's just so easy that you're pretty much guaranteed some form of success at least. Wow. Now, yeah. one of the other things you do is you're an irrigation instructor, and I do a little bit of this on the side too. But I'm curious, what does it mean um, for you when you say that you teach a class on irrigation? Well, you know, people come into here, and we have here at Peaceful Valley, we have a lot of different systems that we, we sell, and so it can get really complicated when you think of all the different pieces that go together, and I, I always liken it to Legos or Tinker Toys or something that, you know, you have to really think about building the system up, and so the irrigation class I've taught, I've taught a few years now, um, it's just essentially I go through the whole section in our store of, of the irrigation, and I just explain how all the systems work, how they work, what requirements they, they need. Um, as far as pressure and all of that, and then um, how all the pieces fit together. So um, it's really it's really fun. It's really popular because everybody seems a little bit you know befuddled by it. Um, and uh, but once you get that drip going, it makes your life so much easier. Oh, it does, it. doesn't it? It's it's transformative. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a lot easier too than what people think, I think, when they start getting into it. It's it's the the pieces are so widely available now mm-hmm. that um, yeah. almost anybody can do it. So 
Um, But today, we're here to talk about um, a couple of areas of interest to gardeners. The first is cover crops. Why don't you introduce our audience to the concept of a cover crop? Well, a cover crop is um, it's a crop that's grown for the protection and enrichment of the soil. So um, basically, you're, you're, they're definitely the cheapest and the best way to improve your soil. Uh, since growing food crops organically requires, uh, it relies a lot on the health of the soil to, for success, whereas chemical agriculture doesn't. Um, you know, you rely on the chemical inputs for success in your crops. Organic gardening, organic farming, you really want, you build up the soil over time and it's the soil that feeds the plants, not the fertilizer. Um, so cover cropping is an essential component of, of organic farming and gardening because it builds up that soil. What's people's reaction when they first hear about this concept? I mean, I know you teach the class and I know you've, you've introduced this concept to a lot of people. What's their reaction when they hear about this? It's great because people tend to like it because it's it's such a passive thing. You know, you plant it. If you plant it in the winter, you often don't even really have to water. You have to watch it and water it if, if there's a dry spell, but you don't really have to water it. it. It does all the work for you. You know, while while your beds are sleeping, they're also building and growing and, um, and working for you and without with very little maintenance. So I think uh, people are usually all they come on board, you know. Yeah. And they, they really do help the soil. They, they're an essential soil amendment. And, and as you mentioned, they're a great way to winterize your gardens. When is the ideal time to start planting cover crops? Is now a good time? Um, yeah, it depends on where you live. Um, now could be a little late if you're in a colder climate. Um, you do want to, I'd say maybe September would be ideal if you're colder. Um, in the warmer parts of the U.S., then you definitely still could. Um you can also plant them in the spring for a summer cover crop. Okay. And there's different crops that grow, uh, you know, in either season. Um, so it just kind of depends, you know, it, it, you want to basically plant your cover crop as soon as you pull out whatever was in there before. So as soon as you pull your last tomato and then you pull the plant up, put it in the compost pile or wherever, um, then you want to plant your cover crop. So as soon as the land's available. When you're scattering cover crop seed, obviously there's no need for neat rows. You can just disperse it by hand. But would you recommend maybe a little heavier application to make up for some that might be picked up by birds or other critters? Yeah, you definitely can. Um, you know, the the application rates that we recommend like on our website and in the catalog uh, already are a little heavier. Um, and these things, especially the legumes, you know, they they thrive even in poor soils, and so they will spread and grow pretty rapidly. But um, for birds, you know, you definitely want to cover the seed with something, whether it be just a very light layer of compost or a very thin layer of, of straw or something. And that just kind of, it kind of confuses the birds and um, keeps it from being bird food, basically. Sure. So... And it also protects the seed if it's a little colder or whatever. 
Oh, yes, of course. Now, mm-hmm. um, when Margaret Roach wrote about cover crops back in 2009, she titled her post, Feeding the Soil That Feeds Me. And I just loved that. I thought that was a great way of thinking about cover crops. And that really is the point of cover crops. And yet there are also other advantages that I know that you um, that you can share with our listeners. Can you share some of the main benefits of cover crops for gardeners who have not tried this technique? Yeah, well, what I always point out to people is that the two most expensive additions to your garden in the spring, so fertilizer additions in the spring, are nitrogen and organic matter. So all that that manure or compost that you're adding to the garden is expensive, and so is nitrogen. You know, whether you use feather meal or blood meal or whatever you use, that's the most expensive part. All the potassium, phosphorus, that's not that's not the expensive part. It's the nitrogen and the organic matter. So by planting cover crops, you're fixing nitrogen. So you're adding nitrogen and organic matter all in one fell swoop with just the price of the seed. So that, I think, if nothing else, that would be the, the key part of why you would plant cover crops. Um, at the same time that you're fixing nitrogen and adding organic matter, um, you're suppressing weeds. So that means, you know, less having to deal with that in the spring. Um, And, you know, uh, you're putting in plants that are easier to deal with in the spring than some weeds with a big taproot or something. Um, You're improving the soil tilth and increasing biology. Earthworms love cover crops. So you're increasing all of that. Um, You're reducing erosion. That's really key. Uh, you know, especially areas with heavy winter rains, you know, that's a real big issue. Uh, it can help with certain pest problems. So um, one thing that comes to mind is nematodes. And uh, there are certain cover crops that you can plant that uh, will kill nematodes. Um, in the cool season, that would be like rape or canola or oilseed radish. Okay. Uh, in the warm season, it's like sesame is a good one. So they're nematicidal. So you, you grow them and then you chop them up and you till them in. And as they break down, they give off a chemical that'll kill uh, nematodes. So that's a really good thing. You know, it's a real um, easy and inexpensive and very effective way to control nematodes. Um, they help with crop rotation. So your organic gardener listeners know that crop rotation is another key component to organic gardening and by planting a cover crop you kind of build in you know a crop rotation which is good yeah and then uh sorry that's a great point I was just going to say because they're for folks that are are really struggling and I know sometimes in the community gardens if you lose um some of those key you know crop leaders and you're not sure some of the history in those gardens that's a great way Mm -hmm. to kind of help uh get some you know get some nutrients back in the soil, but also some, some time in between some of those crops. So that's absolutely, yeah. yeah. And all the benefits that go with it. So the only other thing I was going to mention is that it also provides habitat for natural enemies. So all of your beneficial insects, um, they have somewhere to be so that they stick around for when the spring comes and you have pest problems. 
Hmm. Now, um, you and I were going to touch a little bit on uh, cool season, warm season crops, because I know that um, buckwheat is an effective uh, cover crop because it can really help suppress weeds along with many others. And and choosing the right cover crop really depends on a number of factors. What are some of the things that you would suggest gardeners consider before purchasing a cover crop? Uh, yeah, great. Um, well, do you want to really think about what what you want to do with the soil um, before, you know, after you're done cover cropping. So if it's a veggie garden, then when are you going to plant that veggie garden? If it's an orchard, you know, are you just building up the soil to prepare for an orchard or do you have the orchard already in place? Or, you know, you really want to think about what the goal is and then what cover crop you choose will depend, you know, depend, help you get to that goal. So um, the cool season, there's cool season and warm season cover crops. So you would use a warm season cover crop, obviously, if you're not going to be using that plot of land in the summer for veggies or fruit or whatever. So buckwheat is a great one. Um, it ha- it grows really rapidly, puts out a ton of organic matter, um, real easy to till in, has lovely little white flowers for, you know, beneficial insects. They love it. Um I like to plant a mix of buckwheat and cowpeas because buckwheat is not a legume, so they don't actually fix nitrogen. So you add the cowpeas so that it fixes nitrogen and adds the organic matter. Um, Another really good uh, warm season cover crop is black-eyed peas. They're really easy to grow and they're a really pretty plant. Mm -hmm. And so maybe just in your garden, you know, if you have an area that you're not quite ready, the soil is not, not as great as you want it to be, um, it's not quite ready for tilling, then you could plant a cover crop there and build up the soil until you're ready. Do you have some personal favorites, some cover crops that you particularly enjoy? Uh, well, I, I love planting the black-eyed bees. That's a good one. Um, we sell our soil builder mix, um, which is our most popular one, uh, and for good reason. It's a really good mix of uh, oats and legumes. Okay. Um, and so it has uh, bell beans, which are related to fava beans, but not as tasty because they're mm. not grown for they're not grown for a delicious bean. They're grown for the cover crop value. Of okay. It. Um, and then biomaster peas, again called biomaster peas because they put out a lot of biomass, not because they're a delicious pea. Okay. Um, also vetches. So um, these are all cool season. Also, I'll mention. So vetch is a is a cool season legume that has pretty purple flowers and kind of grows in a vine. And then when you mix all those with the oats, like in the soil builder mix, the oats grow up straight and tall and work as like a scaffolding for the beans and peas and vetch to climb up. Hmm. Um, another favorite, you know, crimson clover. It's a classic. It's an annual clover. It's It does not need a whole lot of, you know, it doesn't need a very fertile soil to grow in. And uh, it grows beautiful red flowers and will really take off. It's very aggressive, so you can really get it established, and it'll improve the soil pretty quickly. Can can anybody make a wrong choice when it comes to selecting cover crops, do you think? Hmm, That's a good question. Um, Yeah, I guess so. You could plant the wrong thing at the wrong time. I have a lot of people who come in at the end of the summer and want to plant buckwheat, and it just won't really have time to get established. I have people who come in November and want to plant a cover crop, and Oh, uh, you know, it's not really the right time yes. <laughs> if you're a little late. Um, or maybe they want to, you know, in the late 
the late spring, they, they want to plant one because they didn't in the fall. And there, you really just need time for it to, to grow, you know, to, in order to get the maximum out of it. So timing, um, timing more than anything is probably the issue that people run into. Yeah, or planting like a perennial cover crop when you're not planning on letting it be perennial, sure. <laughs> letting yeah, it live yeah. year round. Yes. Um, because, you know, there's benefits to a perennial, but they don't get established as quickly as annuals. And so you're probably better off just planting an annual. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a cover crop that you feel is underappreciated or lesser known by everyday gardeners? My favorites that I saw a lot is uh, fenugreek. Actually, it's um, uh, it's used a lot in Indian food, I think. Um, and it's it's a legume, and it has beautiful white flowers with blue markings, and the foliage is aromatic. Um, and uh, it germinates at lower soil temperatures than other winter legumes. So it um, for those people who waited till November, I saw a lot of fenugreek to those people. Huh, and it's um, also um, something that nursing mothers use. There you go. Yeah, yeah the seeds are medicinal. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. I remember that when I had my four kids in five years. I think I was on fenugreek. <laughs> I think I was on a five-year five stent of fenugreek, but I didn't know it could be a cover crop, so that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's really easy to grow. Um, it has low growth, so it makes it easy to turn under in the spring. And uh, it it's not a real... You know, it doesn't put out a ton of organic matter, but if, if, like I said, if it's the last minute, you're like, oh, crap, I forgot to plant my cover crop. What do I plant? Usually I point to fenugreek. Yeah. Is it attractive? Oh, yeah. I think it's lovely. Mm-hmm. You do? Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. So- yeah like I said, the, the foliage is aromatic. So as you walk through, it smells good. And um, huh. it has pretty white flowers with blue, blue streaks on them. All right. Really cool. Okay, we'll take it. Um, let's, <laughs> let's talk a little plant fizz. We talk a lot about the term fixing nitrogen when we talk about cover crops, but can you tell us what specifically is happening in the soil when you plant a cover crop? Yeah, um, well, most of the point of cover crops is to plant legumes in order to fix nitrogen. And what that means is, so legumes grow in a symbiotic relationship with a soil-dwelling rhizobacteria. And the big bacteria is actually what takes the atmospheric nitrogen from the air and puts it into the soil. And the nitrogen then feeds the legumes. And in exchange, the plant provides carbohydrates to the bacteria. And so um, lonely legumes do this. Only legume plants do this because they have these special nodes on their roots that harbor these bacteria. So it's pretty amazing pretty awesome. Um, like I said, nitrogen is um, the one of the most expensive nutrients you need to add to your garden and all plants need it. Yes. Um, and so it's, you know, just that fixing nitrogen, that's, that's really key. And, and they, the plant holds the nitrogen down in the soil and it also holds it in its, you know, in the plant. And so when you, when you till in the, the plant into the soil, that's what it's adding the nitrogen back to the soil. It also, you know, also different cover crops will, one of, some of the mustards and things that have deeper tap roots, they'll actually form this deep tap root that'll go down deeper into the soil and pull nutrients up to the surface of the soil. So that part's really cool too. So while it may not add other nutrients like phosphorus or um, calcium or things like that, it actually will access the nutrients that are deeper down into the soil. 
kind of like a little uh, mining company. Exactly. Yeah. So Hmm. that's really cool. And, um, you know, and just the organic matter, like that's nothing to scoff at. The organic matter, by having a healthy um, soil environment, then that's making all of the fertilizers and anything that you put into the soil, it's making all of that much more available to the plant. You know, the more biology you have, the more earthworms you have, the more, the more your soil is alive and, 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 you know, diverse, then the better it's going to do as far as taking up all the nutrients. Now, once the cover crops are sown, do you like to cover the seed with straw or row covers to warm the beds? Um, either way, you know, it kind of depends on where you live. If you live in a really cold climate, you might want to try row covers. Um, hopefully you're planting something that will do fine in your, um, in your area and you're starting it soon enough. So, um, if you live in a really cold environment, you might want to start earlier, like in early September, uh, with a cover crop that can handle the cold, handle the snow, um, such as uh, cereal rye and hairy vetch. Hmm. That's a really good mix for cold areas. Um, and uh, they, once they get established, they'll stay alive even under a blanket of snow. Really? You know, so they'll still be doing that. If you don't let them, if you just throw out the seed and then it snows right away, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to do anything. Yep. But if you give them a chance to get established first, then um, then they'll do what you want them to do. And, you know, they'll grow slowly over the course of the winter. And then as soon as it starts getting warm, they'll just take off like crazy. Hmm. Now, hmm. are there cover crops that you like to leave up even in the summer, like the perennial cover crops? Right, yeah. So we sell lots of uh, perennial, um, especially clovers. Clovers are really great. I mentioned the... Uh, the annual clover, the crimson clover, but we also sell one of our best-selling pepper crops. Is a it's called a low-growing clover mix, and it's um, a mix of white clover and strawberry clover, and it's they're both perennial, so you would have to water them in the summer. Um, but they they one's a cool season clover and one's a warm season clover, so it's kind of nice because it's like in the cool season, the white clover is gonna thrive and take off and, you know, really kind of outcrowd the strawberry. But then as soon as it starts to decline, because it gets warmer, then the strawberry clover takes over and and it it thrives in the warm season. And so they kind of work together in that way. They'll both be alive year round because they're perennial, but the one just likes the warm season better than the cool season and vice versa. So they work really well together. And it's a really great mix to put like in an orchard or a vineyard. You can put it around um, around your trees or around your vines, and um, it'll just improve the soil and fix nitrogen, and you don't really have to do anything except for water it. Perennial clovers are a little tougher to get established than the annual clovers, so those are way more aggressive. But if you're planning on, you know, leaving it to be like a permanent cover crop, then it's a really great thing. Do you recommend um, that gardeners have some test areas, maybe some areas that they don't plant cover crops in so they can see the difference? Or do you not think that's necessary? Well, it depends. You know, if you're if you have a large area and you're planning on investing a lot of energy and time and money into planting cover crops, then it probably would be a good idea to do a test area first. If you're just going, you know, if you just have a vegetable garden and you, you've heard about cover crops, you think, oh yeah, that's probably a good idea. You could just try some, some of the soil builder mix 
um, plant that, uh, inoculate it with some of that um, uh, soil-dwelling bacteria that we talked about. And um, so you just coat the seed with that and then put it out in the garden and it should just do what you want it to do pretty, pretty easily. Pretty easy. So let's give listeners some tips for first-time cover crop success. Are there any, some, any pointers that you would give um, for folks who are going to try to give this a shot? If it's, if it's too late now, maybe it's something they think about for spring, but in either case, some things that maybe they should, should keep in mind before they start this, down this path. Well, just planning ahead, I guess, you know, might be a little late now, but um, but it probably isn't for a lot of the things that you're going to plant. Like I said, those vetches and peas and all that, they don't mind the cold weather. They'll still, they'll still sprout. Um, and uh, so, yeah, just, just choosing the right cover crop based on what you need. Um, like I said, inoculating the cover crop is really important um, because people a lot of times think that the inoculant helps the legume grow. The legume will grow regardless without the inoculant, but because there is that soil-dwelling rhizobacteria, that's in your soil, but um, they're all very specific to all the different bacteria are specific to the legume. So do you want to, what you're doing is you're coating that seed with the bacteria that's specific for that legume. So it, it's going to grow fine without it, but it's going to fix a lot more nitrogen with it. So I think that's a really big key because that is, the point of planting the cover crop, or at least a big part of the point. And and so, um, just once again, so for so for folks who have not used an inoculant before, um, go through how that is used and maybe why that works together with the cover crop. Yeah, so um, it's really simple. We sell the inoculants. You want to make sure that you buy an inoculant for that specific legume. So we sell a, a pea vetch mix to, with the soil builder mix. Um, and that uh, that works for that, that those particular legumes. That's the right bacteria for them. There's most of the clover seed that you buy is pre-inoculated, so you might when you get it, you might look at it and it's it's got like a gray coating to it. That's the inoculant. So you don't have to do anything with that. You just spread that. It's already pre-inoculated. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. Um, but the soil builder mix, you know, you're, you're going to put a little bit of water or maybe milk, milk. I like to use milk because it gives a little bit of sugar for the bacteria too. And it makes them get activated a little sooner. Um, and you just put a tiny bit of milk on the seed, maybe put the seed in a bucket, put a few, a little bit of milk in there to get it just a little bit damp. And then the inoculants in a very fine powder and you sprinkle the powder over the seed um, and then you just, you can spread the seed coated with the bacteria. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's a really, it's definitely recommended, especially if you've never cover cropped before yes. or if you've never inoculated before. Once you kind of get a colony of those particular bacteria going, then you don't have to inoculate every year. Okay. When hmm. spring comes then, what are some of your methods for dealing with cover crops? So so they've they've grown all year or they've done their work and and then what do you do? What are the next steps when spring hits? So you have some choices. Um, you definitely want to wait to cut the cover crop until the cover crop is half in bloom. If you cut it sooner, then you won't get the maximum benefits of the cover crop. You won't get the maximum amount of nitrogen, the maximum amount of organic matter. So you want to cut it when it's half in bloom. So once you just start to notice that it's flowering. Um, if you if you harvest it too late, 
um, and it's not half in bloom, but fully in bloom, then you will, some seeds will develop. And if you allow your cover crop to develop seeds, you know, the beans or the peas, then you're just, you're, you're, you're not, again, you're not maximizing the benefits because you, the seeds can become a weed. Um, and not to mention that the plant then has used up some of that nitrogen that it was fixing to make the seeds. So the um, the plant composition has changed. So a lot of times once they start to make seeds, they're woodier because the carbon to nitrogen ratio is off. Yes. So um, really you want to cut the plant. It's going to be easier to cut. You're going to get maximum nitrogen and maximum organic matter if you do it when the cover crop is just starting to bloom. Just starting to bloom. So would you say yeah. like um, within a week of that of that initial bloom would be the ideal time then? Typically, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. It kind of depends on what the crop is, but yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Awesome. Um, and then you have some options. You can cut the cover crop and let it lay where it is. Um, if you're kind of doing the more the lasagna gardening style. Yes. Um, but you will lose some of the nitrogen back to the atmosphere if you do it that way, because um, as it as it breaks down, it's breaking down just in the air, and so the nitrogen just goes back to the air. Um, if then. So you can also cut it and put the green manure in your compost pile okay. and do it that way. Um, an advantage of that is that, you know, you're, you're, you'll be adding finished compost to your garden, which is good, um, rather than the green manure, which is, you know, pretty raw. Okay. Um, a advantage is that you have to cut it, put it in the compost pile, and then put it back, yes. <laughs> which that's yeah. a lot more work. Yeah. Um, so the, what I do and what I think, you know, the easy, easiest and the best way is um, to cut the cover crop and till it into the soil. And then that way you maximize the nitrogen retention. Hmm. And um, I, I like to cut it uh, a bunch, I like to cut it up into smaller pieces as much as possible um, before I do it. So I usually take my weed whacker and I whack the top, whack the next layer, whack the next layer, whack the next layer so that it's in, in smaller pieces. It breaks down faster. If you do it that way. Yes. The haircut method. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And then, and then you're going to till it in and um, you're going to wait at least three weeks until planting. That all depends on the weather and what you've, you know, the carbon to nitrogen ratio and all that. But I say just at least three weeks um, to give the green manure a chance to break down. You can put a soil thermometer in there. And if it's real hot down there, uh, then it's not done breaking down. Yes. If it's nice and cool, then it's probably done. Yes. So yep. If you try to plant right into it, then you'll just fry your seeds. There's there's so much to it, you know, and, and really cover crops are just a key part to organic gardening. It can be as simple or as complicated as you want. Yes. Um, and, you know, it, it can really benefit you in so many different ways. So if you, um, you know, you feel free to call me or, you know, contact Diesel Valley if you if you really have an issue or have, you know, something that you want to solve using a cover crop, you probably can. It's pretty pretty diverse there. So let's switch gears now and let's chat about your other topic, which is growing organic garlic and shallots. And I think most folks are familiar with at least what garlic is, but how do you describe a shallot to newbie gardeners or to cooks who aren't familiar with it? Because they're sweeter than onions, right? Yeah, they just have a milder, more delicate flavor. Um, they're similar to onions in their flavor, um, but they're they're a little bit smaller. They look they look a lot like an onion. 
um, but they grow more like garlic in that they they grow in sections, mm-hmm. like in cloves, more like garlic, and um, they grow really shallowly. So you, when you plant them, you you plant them so that the tip, unlike garlic, which you're going to plant, you know, a couple inches below the soil surface, shallots you're going to plant right and and level with the soil surface. Yeah, and uh, and then yeah, and then they they grow that way. So they're they're really easy. They're really fun, and they're very delicious. They are delicious. You and I were chatting, and I know my kids prefer when I cook with shallots over onions, again, just because it's a little sweeter, milder flavor. So mm-hmm. um, I know that Peaceful Valley offers the French red shallot um, to yeah. customers. Tell us a little bit about this French red. Um, again, it's red, and it's red. Uh, it has a nice, yeah, a nice shiny red um cover and then you peel it away and it has um purple flesh kind of like a purple like a very small purple onion okay and um it's nice and sweet and it's used in you know traditional french cooking i i like it for salad dressings a lot of the time because it has a nice milder flavor wee wee (laughs) is it a very big shallot uh well it's as big as you can grow it of course okay uh it's not it's not as big as an onion okay Yeah. Would you say it's kind of a standard size or uh-huh. just yeah. to give people an idea? Okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, I recently interviewed Deborah Madison, and these vegetables, garlics and shallots, used to be included in the Liliaceae family, but they're now part of the Amaryllis family, basically. And one thing, oh, yeah. Yeah, and one thing that sets these plants apart is that they're monocots, which means they send up a single shoot from a bulb rather than two leaves or dicots, which most plants do. And the flowers are edible, too. And I know you and I were talking because you sell all kinds of alliums at Peaceful Valley, but gardeners are very passionate about alliums, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, some of my, my favorite edible flowers are um, alliums. I really like the uh, the chive flowers, mm-hmm. you know, and they grow these purple puffball flowers that you can put into your salads. And those yes. are really those are really pretty and um, tasty. Can taste like a mild onion flavor. Yep. And then there's the big, the big alliums. What did you call those again? Purple. They're the giant purple. Yes, the big like flowers. the globe allium or the big giant globe allium. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Those yep. are cool. Yes. Yeah. Which I'm partial to. You know, I I was at a garden tour one time, and a lady after they had dried, she had put a um, kind of a newspaper funnel around the um, the dried globe. Uh, flower and then sprayed them bright colors with a uh, spray paint. Oh, cool! Yeah, to kind yeah. of give that illusion, you know, that they were still blooming. But it was I. I like to see them dried in the garden still, or I'll pop them off and put them in an arrangement. But you know, I by never golly, thought of spray painting. I'm telling you, those those babies will stand all summer long. I mean, it really isn't until about August that they might get whacked with a football or something around here, and then <laughs> and then they're they're kind of falling over. But I mean, dang, they stand up a long time, don't they? Yeah, yeah, no, they're lovely. Yeah. Now, um, shallots and garlic form clusters of bulbs, and thus they're known as multiplier onions. And there are many varieties of garlic, but there's only two basic kinds, hard neck and soft neck. What can you tell us about these different kinds of garlic, the advantages and disadvantages to both? Well, first of all, I don't know if everybody, all your listeners realize, like, how you plant garlic and um, basically, you know, you get a head of garlic and yes. you separate it into cloves and you're going to plant one clove with the blunt end down 
Um, and that one clove will then form one head of garlic. So when they say garlic seed, they don't mean little seeds that come in a seed packet. They mean an actual head of garlic. Yes. And one clove will form one head. So it's funny how many people don't know that, but, um, and, uh, same with shallots. Shallots come in a, in a cluster and you just break apart one clove off that cluster and plant that and it should make its own new cluster. Um, there are two basic kinds of garlic and lots of subcategories therein. Um, the hard net garlics are more gourmet, so they're not necessarily the garlic that you can find in the store. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, uh, they don't keep as well because their skins are really easy to peel off. So they don't keep quite as long. They dry out faster than a soft net garlic. Um, but their flavors are a lot more complex. They're a lot spicier. Um, they're really delicious. Mm-hmm. And um, you get a lot of diversity in color and shape and um, flavor when it, when it comes to the hard neck garlics. They have a hard scape in the middle. So a lot of the soft neck garlics that you've bought in the store, the... Uh, you have the big cloves on the outside of the head, and then on the inside, there's all these little tiny cloves that can be a pain in the butt. Um, hard neck garlic don't have that. They have um, one hard scape in the middle. So that's how you can tell the difference pretty easily. Hmm. Um, the soft neck garlics, though, while they might not have as complex flavors, um, the benefits of those is that uh, they do keep a lot longer, and you can, because their their necks are soft, obviously. Um, yep. You can braid them into make really sweet little garlic braids. So uh, personally, I always grow a hard neck and a soft neck, and I braid my soft neck and keep it. I hang it up in the kitchen and just keep it for when I'm done with the hard neck. Hmm. And I eat the hard neck first, hmm. and you know, share it with my friends or whatever. And then um, as soon as I'm out of hard neck, I uh, I bust into the soft neck, huh. and so. Yeah, so it, it kind of works. Um, it works to keep you so you have garlic year round. <laughs> yes, yes. Which is a, which is an admirable thing to do, right? To have it hand right. in hand. Yes, absolutely. Now, yeah. um, and really, you know, I have a lot of friends that that plant garlic, and they they strive to um, basically buy that initial um, crop of garlic to plant, and then thereafter, just you know, kind of regenerate their own. So is that mm-hmm. a reasonable is that a reasonable goal for most first time garlic yeah. growers? Yeah, and you you know your hard necks. Well, I say they won't last a year. They you'll you'll be able to save enough. I mean, if you don't eat it all, <laughs> that's the biggest problem. But um, you you should be able to save enough uh, for seed. You know, it might not be as juicy and delicious as it was at the beginning of the year because it's dried out some. But you can still save it and, and seed with it and use the same garlic year after year. Yes. And you do basically yeah. the same like you would do with other things, right? You just keep it in a cool, dry location. And, Absolutely. And then when you're yeah. ready to start planting. Um, when is when do you think is the ideal time to start planting um, planting these? I mean, are you, are you looking at more of a November um, than a late in, October? Here in Northern or? California, definitely yeah. early okay. November, late October. Um, okay. You want to have a good first frost. Okay. Um, before, maybe not a killing frost, but definitely a frost. Mm-hmm. Um, because you you don't necessarily want your garlic to sprout above ground. Yeah. Um, you, the reason why you plant it in the fall is that 
it will get its root structure because they are root vegetables. So they have a huge root structure. I mean, you would be shocked if you could see underground how big that root system goes. Um, and so you plant them in the fall, not because you want to have a big plant in the fall, but because underground, you can even cover it with a bunch of mulch, especially in cold areas. Um, underground, it's growing all all winter long. Mm-hmm. And then in the spring, it sends up a, a shoot and it actually starts growing a plant. Yeah. Um, so the, that's why you want to, if you planted it earlier in the year, it would start to grow the plant and then the plant might be susceptible to, uh, to the cold. And also it might, if you plant it too early, then it could uh, vernalize. So it could try to go to seed oh. uh, too, too early. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Didn't know that. Um, yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting because uh, living in Minnesota, as I do, um, once the first snow hits, a lot of times, you know, people just assume that there's nothing happening in the garden. And um, as I always like to show my kids in the spring, um, up here, what I do is I bury a lot of my succulents um, because if they're just left out, um, especially if they're in pots or containers or I have a succulent wreath, um, they'll just, you know, uh, the cold will dry them completely out. But if you bury them in mulch, um, they basically huh. continue to grow. And so um, by the time uh, spring rolls around and I'm digging through, literally digging through the garden, trying to find where I buried all these things, um, I'll pull out like a a, um, a pot of hen and chicks and it'll have had all these babies while it was buried under super cool yeah and so um, onions garlic shallots all this stuff um, there's a lot of things that are happening um, you know just when you think that there's nothing happening when the garden is completely you know dead or buried and and so I love those things I love I love that story you know to be able to tell the kids that you know, things are happening just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. So right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, and that's pulling a warm blanket over Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great metaphor for that. Now, tell me, <laughs> um, tell me a little bit more about this root structure. Have you seen that? Have you? Do you have a picture of that by any chance? Uh, well, there's this really cool book that we sell called Roots Demystified, okay. and it has charts and diagrams of all of these different you know, plants and vegetables that you grow in your garden Uh and what the root structure looks like and on a graph so you can see how huge it is, Yeah, you know, and it's, it's really amazing. Like things you wouldn't even think of, you know, or, or things that you would think would have a bigger root system than they do. You know, it's really, it's really cool. It's a really good book. You should check it out. I will check it out. You know, all Mm -hmm. you need is um, to have a massive storm go through and see some really ginormous trees topple over. And then you really appreciate uh, root structure because I know up here we had a, a horrible storm this spring and a lot of our uh, conifers, you know, didn't make it. And um, what's so surprising is how limited the root structure is on these ginormous yeah. evergreens because there's just not that much to it. And so when they pull the whole ground up and you can see, it's just, you would just expect that these ginormous trees have, you know, roots that go to almost the center of the earth and that's just not the case. So, yeah, but yeah. the hardwoods do. The hardwoods have those huge, thick yes. structures. Yes, yeah. I bet that's something to see, isn't that? Or do they? Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't even go over in storms. I don't know. Well, when I, I grew up in Georgia, and um, I one of my childhood memory is watching a tornado rip an oak tree out of the ground. <laughs> what was that like? Uh, it was sounded like a freight train. That's for sure. Wow. And 
yeah, and just it was just enormous the root structure on that, you really? know. And most a lot of the roots had broken, but the top, the bottom looked just like the top, you know. Mm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's like the the iceberg on the Titanic, right? We're only seeing right. what like three percent of it, and there's this ginormous structure under there. Well, yeah. I'm gonna look into that roots demystified, and I'll make sure that I put that in the show notes as well for people. But I love getting little tips like that. Gardeners are are always on the lookout for good books like that, so that's great. Yeah, it really gives you a good indication too as to why you shouldn't transplant things like carrots, beets. Mm. Because they just have such an enormous root system that there's no way you could start them in a little tiny container. <laughs> yes. Yes. Huh. Yeah. Now, what are what are some of your favorite varieties of garlic? Or what, what are some of the varieties that you, you um, offer at Peaceful Valley? Well, we have, let's see, I think 17 different varieties. So we have a lot. Um, there's all different kinds. Uh, most of the diversity comes in the hard necks, although we have three different kinds of soft necks. Okay. Um, the California early white, the California late white, and then this new variety that called Lahontan white. Um, they're all the soft necks. Okay. And uh, the Lahontan's really, really nice. I definitely would recommend that one for areas that have hot summers and cold winters. How do you spell really? that? How do you spell that for folks? Lahontan, L-A-H-O-N-T-A-N. L-A-H-O-N-T-A-N. It's from the, it was grown in the Lahontan Valley in Nevada. Huh, okay. And uh, so those are really nice. I, I'm growing the Lahontan this year um, for my soft neck. Okay. And um, I always grow music. Uh, it's a porcelain hard neck, a uh, very cold hardy variety, very easy to grow, very consistently large bold. So some years, you know, maybe I don't get as much water to my garlic or something, and the heads will be smaller than I ideal, you know. Okay. Um, but when you grow a hard neck, the beauty of that is the cloves are so big on those that even if you have a small head, the cloves are normal size. Really? You know? Yeah, because they're the cloves are just so enormous. Mm. I mean, on a on a on a head of music, you'll get maybe six cloves on one head. Wow. Because they're so big. And that's like a normal size head of garlic, but mm. big cloves, you know? So, um, it's really tasty and uh, has a nice pink tinge to it, to the to the clove skins, and it's it stores a little better than some other hardnecks. So um, I definitely like music. Another one that I grew last year that I really liked and I'm eating this year um, is uh, the purple purple Italian. It's a Ro Campbell hardneck, hmm. and um, it's just a pretty classic Italian garlic. It has nice stripes on it so it's kind of fun looking and uh it has a really nice pungent yet sweet flavor hmm. yeah i mean they're all really good we have one called bogatir that is supposed to be the spiciest of the garlic we have one called georgian fire that's really spicy and nice full flavor wow. um What's yeah i like a little more of the sweet Okay, I'm sorry about that. Tell me, um, what what's your best what's your best seller in the hard neck category? Yeah, definitely the music. Um, we lowered the price on the music just to you know make up for that because it is a it is one of our best sellers. So um, yeah, it's definitely everybody comes in looking for it, and it's it's really pretty too. Really? I mean, you you want to grow it when you see it. <laughs> That's awesome, and it and it is um, um, hardy in the northern climates or in the colder climates? Oh, absolutely. Any of the hard necks also would be a lot hardier than the soft necks. 
Okay. Also. Hmm. Another bonus. Now, young garlic that is harvested in the spring is known as wet garlic. It looks like a leek. It has a mild flavor. Either way, no matter when you harvest, when should gardeners be sowing these seeds? Because the time to plant is in the fall. So I know you mentioned after the first frost, but Mm -hmm. are there any other guidelines? So like where you should plant it, how deep you should plant it, um, any particular timing? Like, can you, I mean, is there, can you be too late to plant garlic? Um, but I think you should probably still give it a try. I don't know, in areas, in winter air, you know, colder zones like Minnesota, you might, you know, your ground actually freezes. I'm in Northern California. My ground never freezes. Um, but uh, it does up in the mountains, but not where I live. And so I could plant it, you know, pretty much, I mean, I would give it a try any other time. But like I said, you do want to give the garlic enough time to get that root structure going. Um, before, uh, spring comes. So, you know, you might be too late in February or something, but maybe December, if your ground is not frozen, then you could, you could get it in there and then just mulch really heavily. Okay. Yeah. So really the main takeaway is get it done before the first freeze. Or just after. Or just after. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how deep should you plant it? Is it like planting a bulb? Uh, it is, yeah. You don't want to plant it too deep. Um, I'd say two to three inches at the most. Okay. Um, like I said, a shallot's a little different. Um, they like to be planted right at the soil surface. But garlic, you want to go about two inches down. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And, then, and you know, if you're in a colder climate, you can go a little further down or you can cover it with a big, heavy uh, layer of mulch um, just because... You do not want the garlic to freeze. That would be, it would just rot then. Okay. Now, are there any special soil requirements for growing garlic or shallots? Yeah, you want to have, um, you know, you want to have your pH uh, between 6 and 6.8, somewhere around there. Um, you want it to be fertile and well-drained soil. Um, you want it to have, you know, a loose uh, composition. Um, definitely high in organic matter and, but compost that's fully broken down. You want to add, you know, only fully broken down compost and you definitely want to add phosphorus would be a good idea as they are a root vegetable. Um, phosphorus is the the main nutrient for root growth. So you want to make sure you have lots of phosphorus. I, I know a lot of years I talked to people about why their garlic didn't necessarily get so big and a lot of it has to do with the phosphorus deficiency. So um, phosphorus, you know, bone meal, uh, soft drug phosphate, things like that would be good to plant, uh, to use at the same time. Phosphorus is one of those nutrients you want to get in the root zone. So um, just like when you're planting bulbs, you want to add some bone meal. Same thing when you're planting garlic. Hmm. Now, it's important to keep weeds away, isn't it? Because, again, that giant root structure, you, it does not like to compete. Yes. So um, mulch will help with the weeds. Um, but also, yeah, that's that's one of the main jobs. I mean, the garlic is so easy to grow. You can almost plant it and forget it. But um, you do want to water it and you do want to weed it. By the way, neither garlic or shallot should be refrigerated. And they should be stored where air can move freely about them. What is your method for harvesting them? And, and how do you know when garlic is ready to pull? Um, that's a good question. So um, you... Basically, your garlic will, like I said, it'll put up a sprout in the, in the early spring, 
and it'll grow pretty rapidly. Um, it'll start to send up a scape, uh, which is the beginning of a flower. And you're going to want to cut that off as soon as you see it. You'll, you'll notice it's like a little curly cue at the top uh, with a little tip on it. And you can cut those off and, um, geez, you can, I, I love pickled garlic scapes. I put them in stir fries. They have a lovely, delicate, rather gourmet flavor. Totally mm-hmm. recommend them. Okay. Um, a lot of the fancier restaurants around in the spring, they'll be using garlic scapes in their cuisine, usually. Okay. Um, and then, uh, then you'll, you'll continue to water them. You're also going to give them a good boost of, uh, nitrogen at that point in the spring when they're starting to put up the green, the green growth. Um, you want to give them some blood meal or something like that. And then, uh, they'll put out the scape and then they'll continue to grow and they'll grow and, um, you'll continue to water them. And then eventually you'll notice right around, maybe it depends on where you live, but maybe June, um, maybe early July, you'll notice that the plant starts to die and it doesn't matter how much you water it or, Maybe it, it, it just continues to die, and that's a good thing. Um, as soon as the, the top of the plant starts to die back, um, you can pull one or two and check them and see how big they are, see how big the heads are, and if they look like a good size, then um, you can pull them. And uh, with the optics, you can braid them. Um, with the hardnicks, you just want to hang them. So you want to hang them on an area where they get lots of ventilation to dry out and um, you'll notice that they're, that they're dry because the, the skins will be nice and dry okay. and that's, that's curing them. You want to cure them. You want it to be dark and not too hot, um, but not cold. Okay. And same thing for storing the garlic, right? Just kind of keep it in a ventilated dry. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You want to keep them, um, uh, you know, somewhat separated from the other vegetables like potatoes and things. Okay. Okay. Well, Sarah, we have had a full day of talking about our cover crops and garlic and shallots. Are there any other things that you want to promote or mention to our listeners before we say goodbye? Yeah. Well, the other thing um, that you want to start thinking about in the winter is you definitely want to start thinking about your your orchard and planting um, those bare root fruit trees. So winter is definitely the best time to plant a fruit tree. Yes. Um, because they're they're um, dormant, and so they handle the transplanting much better than any other time of year. And uh, they're also really inexpensive. We sell them there. Uh, we sell lots of different kinds. Um, all different varieties, you know, whether it's a mulberry or a kiwi or a, a peach. We saw all different kinds of apples and peaches and pears and nectarines and things. And uh, uh, you can check out our catalog at groworganic.com. We have a special, if you buy 10 ferret fruit trees, they're about 20 bucks each. And um, we do free shipping if you buy 10. And we have really um, competitive shipping rates if you buy less, too. Um, and, uh, yeah, so you can get 10 fruit trees delivered to your door for 199 bucks, which is a really good deal. And have so, a Merry Christmas, right? Yeah, exactly. They're a great present. I have a lot of people every year that always want to pick out 
treats for other people because they're they're Christmas presents. Yeah, so. they are a nice gift. My brother got my folks one a uh, couple years ago. They they got an apple tree, and it's just it's really is the gift that keeps on giving. It's really great. Yeah, yeah. we saw all sorts of other like, perennial vegetables too, like asparagus and artichokes and rhubarb and things like that that uh, are really good, especially if you have like a permaculture garden. That's a great tip too. And I love, um, you mentioned earlier when you and I were chatting that you have um, $9.99 flat rate shipping, which is a great deal too for folks. Yeah. And that's all across the U.S. I know. That's amazing. That's really nice. That's a great thing. So yeah, it's uh, everything under 40 pounds. So under 40 pounds. So just order up to up to 40. And uh, if you need to place another order, right? Yeah, there you go. Break Mm -hmm. it up a little bit. Well, that's great. Well, Sarah, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. It's been so fun chatting with you about these end-of-season gardening activities that we can still get in. There's plenty of time to get these things done. Yeah, good. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah. All right. That was it. That was it. Cool. I'll let you go. Thank you. Thank you. You were very generous with your time and info. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. All right. Say hi to Charlotte for me. Okay, I will. Okay, bye-bye. Well, that's it for our show today on cover crops, garlic, and shallots. I want to thank Sarah Griffin Bubakar of Peaceful Valley Farm and Garden Supply for being my guest today. I also want to let you know that Peaceful Valley is donating a pound of the French red shallots and also the music garlic to some lucky listeners. So head on over to the show notes for this episode. You can find it at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F tmamma.com and you can find this episode in the top menu under still growing podcast and just put your name in the comment section and then hopefully you'll be one of our lucky winners. Just a reminder you can find this podcast on iTunes as well as Stitcher and the Blackberry podcast. You can also subscribe directly to the blog post to get them via email. I'm going to have all the information from the show today at sixfootmama.com and you can always find me at sixfootmama.com or on facebook.com backslash still growing with six foot mama. You can also email me directly at jennifer at sixfootmama.com. Feel free to send in your questions for the Master Gardener Roundtable, which airs every other month on Still Growing. Your question will be answered either via email or during the podcast. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is an hour-long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Well, in honor of my lovely conversation with Sarah Griffin Bubakar around shallots and garlic on the show today, the kids are going to read some poetry about shallots and garlic. And then don't forget, at the very end, there's a clip of my after show chat with Sarah, and she had a little secret to share with me. It was something that I've never had a guest share with me before, and it's made me chuckle an awful lot this week. Okay, we'll start it off with Will and this quick little saying about shallots and garlic. Yo, yo, Will's in the house. Will, can you read this poem on garlic? Oh, yeah, I get to read garlic poems now. Okay. (laughs) Here you go, buddy. Shallots are for babies. Onions are for men. Garlic is for heroes. By unknown. Okay, now Will and Emma are going to read 
this little poem that we found online by Stephen West, and it's called Kissing and Garlic Do Not Mix a Poem. Kiss me, you fool. <laughs> Sorry, that, that doesn't sound like Will. Let's get it all over the pop filter. <laughs> Oh, no, go away. You have garlic breath today. I'm not kissing you today. <laughs> I can't. Oh, I can be the male voice. No, <laughs> but my dear, sweet Emily, I love you so. My garlic breath is not so bad. Please don't say no. Your breath is just awful, and it also smells of prunes. <laughs> Your breath is just awful, and it also smells like... <laughs> Oh no, go away. You have. Oh no, go away. You have garlic. Stop. It hurts me so much, you don't know. (laughs) I'm just. When it comes to being serious. Say the poem. Oh no. You have garlic breath. I'm not kissing you today. But my dear sweet Emily, I love you so. My garlic breath is not so bad. Please don't say no. Your breath is just awful. And it... And... (laughs) Stop laughing. And it also smells of prunes. Stay away from me, Craig. Go to another room. But Emily, my love, how can you deny giving me a kiss to your lovable sweet guy? I can, and I will. Rinse your mouth out with soap. You'd better clean your breath, or for you, there's no hope. Craig left the room feeling sad and alone, so he started eating garlic bread. (laughs) (laughs) So he started... (laughs) I'll do it. No. (laughs) So he started eating garlic bread. Well, you have to enunciate. So he started eating garlic bread, as he said with a groan, My dear Emily won't kiss me. I really don't know why. I'm sitting in this rocking chair, ready to cry. Emily came into the room and saw Craig munching on the bread. Get out of my house now. In a few minutes, I'm expecting Ted. (laughs) I would never say this. Get out of my... I would say, please get out of my... Get out of my house now. In a... (laughs) Get out of my house now. In a few minutes, I'm expecting Ted. You dump me for Ted because of my bad breath? Yes, I would, responded Emily, getting that off her chest. I won't be going with a man whose breath smells so bad. Get out of my house now, you you despicable cad. Goodbye, Emily. I'm leaving you forever. Oh, by the way, you can think you're so clever. You can have Ted. Go with him if you wish. But there's a newsflash for you. Ted lives with the fish. Yay. Is that it? That's it. So why do you think it's a big deal that Ted lives with fish? Because she thinks everything smells bad and the fish smell bad. Fish smell really bad, don't they? So if she can't handle a little bad breath, what's she going to think of old Ted? This is a poem called The Garlic and the Rose, and we found it on a website called goodnessofgarlic.com. 
of a valiant garlic, a tale I now recite of bravery and sacrifice of knowing wrong from right. The roses stood alone, unprotected from the bugs, who came and munched and gnawed on them, the creepy little thugs. They cried, oh, please protect us, but their anguish. But their anguish was from, for naught, for the flowers and the shrubs nearby were more concerned with rot. Then came the valiant garlic bulb, the stinker and the stink. The stinker and the rose. Who do you think the stinker is? Garlic? Yeah. The stinker and the rose that grew around the roses and the pests and tear. In terror, froze. You stay away, the garlic said. The rose, she is my friend. I'll nourish and protect her until the bitter end. They have a saying in garden speak that everyone knows. Roses love garlic, and the garlic loves the rose. By Christina McCann, Forest Grove, B.C. That stands for British Columbia. And it stands for British Columbia. Very good. <laughs> I had an argument with one of my coworkers because I said the shallots were called shallots because you plant them shallowly. And he uh. was like, he was like, you're making that up. And I'm like, well, maybe I'm making that up. But doesn't it make sense? Perhaps. <laughs> exactly. But you know what? It is a good way to memorize, you know, how to plant them. I love that tip. I, I wanted to mention that um, I am six foot one. Sarah Griffin <laughs> Bubakar, I need to meet you face to face. That right, is just the right. way it's going to be. And we will be face to face, right? Oh, like we yes. won't be looking down on each other. For <laughs> 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 <If they're> sure. <laughs> I love it. Sarah, now listen, you can't just drop that bomb on me at the end of the show. I need to tell you that because oh. I noticed your blog name. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love you now. <laughs> 